There are a million stories in the Campionato. This week's is one gentleman of Verona called Alberto Malasani. Cazzo. The cursor, the precursor, the former photocopier salesman who rose to become one of the top managers in the world, but Cazzo. ended up regressing to the meme. Plus the Derby of Italy, Atalanta and more in this Cazzo. Golazzo. Yup, blue Eiffel 65 out of Turin, serenading at our entrance this week to big hello to James Horncastle. Hi, James. Hi. And also Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. Hello. May I say thanks to you both for pushing so very hard to make today's show all about Alberto Malasani. He's not the most, in many ways, you know, amongst the Van Bastens and the Zolas and the... (laughs) He's not the most obvious candidate. Why is he Listeners so sp- should know that James has taken a lot of persuading. <laughs> All right. There are several reasons why Alberto Malesani, I think, is special, and, and people should know about him. As you said, the fact that he regressed to a meme means that when you sort of peak in your mid-40s, and then football-wise anyway, you seem to sort of go backwards, then obviously you, you know, you'll, be more quickly, you'll be more quickly forgotten. Think of Gary Coleman and other child actors, although maybe Gary Coleman isn't the best example, Macaulay but I'm sure. Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin. Right. Okay. Let's be clear. <laughs> Alberto Malizani was not a child when he made his way to City Out. Okay. But there was a point in the mid-90s where, and I say this because I'm a bit conflicted because you know of my love of Kievo. He's the guy who kind of made Kievo. And like then what he then later did to Kievo, no? We'll get well, to that. Yes, we will. Um, but... He moves, and this is free spending Parma of the mid '90s. Right, he plays this three-four-three system, and this is mid '90s Italy, right? This mm-hmm. is Fabio Capello winning Serie, A, not losing a game, uh, not scoring and, you know, any scoring goals, scoring like thirty-seven goals in thirty-eight games or something stupid like that, right? And here's this guy who does the opposite. He plays three-four-three. He's very influenced by Louis van Gaal. And again, we're dating ourselves here, right? Because younger listeners, United fans will be like, oh, Louis van Gaal, isn't he the, the weird Dutch guy who spoke funny and nobody understood? Drops and his shorts in dressing room. Drops his shorts and like, right. and at United, he played that dire thing and he was right. arguing when is a long pass, a long pass and a long ball, whatever. No, because there was another Louis van Gaal before that in right. the mid-90s who played fantastic attacking football. So Malasani tactically was one of the good guys and he was a guy who was very much in love with the Dutch way of of doing things. In, in in tactical terms, as you say, mid-90s, he was, he was almost like an Italian Zeman. Attack, and if that doesn't work, but attack some more. The, so we just want to search just about this. It wasn't just attack. So his Parma team yeah. from 98-99, and I did do a little refresher on this. But I don't remember people pointed it out at the time, but it was an asymmetrical team, and I absolutely, absolutely love that, right? What do you mean by asymmetrical? Well, what I mean is... It was a 3-4-3. His three center backs, and pretty, pretty special. And the goalkeeper was Gigi Buffon. He, right. had, uh, he had Cannavaro, um, left-sided center back, Nestor Sensini, and Lilian Turam, right? <laughs> and then his wing backs were this guy, Paolo Vanoli, who just kind of ran up and down, and, and Diego Fuser on the right, whose shtick was he'd always kind of run inside. Everything leaned right because in midfield he had... La Brujita, the little witch, Juan Sebastian Verón. He had Dino Baggio. He had somebody else who was really good. Was it Bogosian? Bogosian, yeah. Um, 
And then up front, he had Chiesa and Crespo. Everything skewed right. Cannavaro never came forward, but like never, ever. And then you had all of a sudden, he just get a total overload on the right-hand side. And because everybody else lines up symmetrically with the same number of people on each side, right, they'd always get stuck. And they'd always come back to, to, to sort of the opposing sides, left side of the, of the pitch where, where they were all attacking. And then what would happen? Veron, outside of his boot, just cut the ball to the other wing where Vanoli was was there all by himself, uh, or sometimes uh, Chiesa, who'd cut that way. And they'd have a clear run on goal, or, or they'd dink it in for, for Crespo, who'd score these amazing backhill goals and whatever else. And it was just such a joy to watch. And it took people so long to work out. Once they did, maybe that's what, what happened to him. Of course, well, this is the thing, James, because... If you look at what generation Malisani belongs to, you know, a lot of the guys that he was coming up with are still working today in Serie A. You, know, you think he's 64, Ranieri is 67, Andrea Zoli is 65, Prandelli is 61, Gasparini is 61, Spalletti is 60, and of course you've got Ancelotti who's 59, um, who he replaced at, at, at Parma. So have all of these guys been able to adapt better than he has you know why has he been out of the game for five years is it because he his star burnt so brightly he was someone who was very much I mean there's a lot of parallels with Arrigo Saki in in terms of how he came to football Mm. how he saw football and maybe we'll get to that in a little bit okay parallels in terms of personality because of course Malizani somebody you'd actually want to hang out with by choice right (laughs) but he thinks he knows what did for his career and it's something called social media but Mm. we'll come on to that Malasani, a man with a complicated reputation right now, both because of his singular lack of results in pretty much the last nine jobs he's had, but also some extraordinary press conferences. I mean, just the most extraordinary press conferences. But the way he begins is interesting because he's a footballer who then quits the game at the age of 24 and gets a job. Is it selling photocopiers? Well, I mean, he works for Canon in logistics. Right, uh, okay. Where he, he basically is in charge of, look, we've got a Canon franchise in Rome, we right. need to send so many rolls of film there, can you do that? Right. We've got a new semi-automatic camera, can you organise that to go okay. to the shop in Parma? It's interesting though, because he starts off working for Canon and he ends up getting fired a lot. <laughs> so that's probably not fair. But anyway, how does all the Canon thing tie in with his love yeah. of Dutch football? We should probably explain to younger listeners mm. as well that there was a time when people had these things called cameras to take pictures rather mm. than just phones. This is a story he tells. And the reason I am I'm slightly skeptical about this, or maybe just adds more to the Malazani legend, right? All this stuff, because of idiot to travel throughout Europe, and he often went to he often went to Holland and he fell in love with with, with Ajax. And what doesn't fully add up here is the guy's 65, right? Which means that working backwards. I don't have his birthday in front of me. I'm sure you do, James. He was probably born in the mid-50s, right? 1954. So if he was 24 when he worked for Canon, that was 1978. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming he didn't get this like funny 24-year-old guy with like the funny hair and like send him to Amsterdam straight away. It was probably a few years after that. So he basically went to go watch Ajax in the 1980s when Ajax weren't good, kind of like in between. Right. I think he should have been watching Goose Hiddink's PSV or something. Well, it's, it's funny, right? Because so he goes, but it almost makes it even more romantic, right? Because right. you can... It goes you to can... the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> but he also, supposedly, he also went to see uh, Barcelona, Cruyff Barcelona, on his honeymoon. This guy has practically no background in football because I think the furthest he ever got was playing in the third division. He played 12 games. And in order to give you some kind of credibility, you follow that kind of... Saki 
you know, I'm some sort of traveling salesman who just happens to stop off at all these really kind of, I don't know, hip clubs and, and pick up all their ideas, which makes me so much more different than anybody else in this league. And why that's why you should give me a chance. I don't know whether that is part right. of the story. What is documented fact, though, is the fact that he, he quits that job when he gets offered a position with Kievo, who at the time are a third division side and a tiny, tiny uh, football entity. And he does really well with them. Yeah, so he got his big break because his mate um, was the president of this small club in Verona called Olympia Montorio. And he did so well there with the under-14s that they basically, he came to the attention of Chievo and they said, why don't you come and work in our youth sector, works his way up the ranks there, becomes assistant manager, and then gets the job on a full-time basis for the first team. He gets them promoted uh, from third to the second division, I think, three years he kind of consolidates their position in that uh in Serie B and then in his final year he takes them to seventh place um they're not really near the playoffs not really close to going up but I think what's remarkable and I think you still see it in Italy more than you do in this country is a club like Fiorentina basically um is moving on from Claudio Ranieri and says hang on a minute we'll give this guy from this no-name team on the periphery of Verona a chance it's, it's a parallel with with Saki you mentioned also Possibly with Maurizio Sarri, another person who'd, who'd quit a, a different profession to try his hand at coaching and gets his break eventually and said, yeah. Yeah, although I think Sarri coached throughout. He <laughs> just did it in his spare time and that night and whatnot. Uh, but it, it is a good point that James makes about in Serie A clubs will do that. They'll look at people in the lower divisions who are who are doing things that are new or interesting or or different. Whereas I think in England, no matter how well you do in the lower divisions, the only way you get a top flight job is if you get promoted to the top flight and then do something special. You know, we're seeing it now, this guy Chris Wilder. Sheffield United promoted this year, does interesting things, overlapping fullbacks, all this. You know, it takes two promotions for him to get the Premier League. I doubt most Premier League clubs would be like, well, we could never take a chance on Mm. some guy, no matter how well or whatever interesting or newfangled things he's doing there. But incredibly. Manizani definitely exploited that. Okay, incredibly, Fiorentina do go. We need a new guy. Because this time... Fiorentina, they're one of the Seti Sorelli, no? This mm-hmm. is a proper club. Proper title ambitions and all that they kind of thing. They won the cup, haven't they? On the Ranieri as well. And they've got Batistuta Rui Costa in that team. Edgemundo as well, I think, is in that side. It's, it's, it's an incredible lineup. It begins in classic Malasani fashion. They're away at uh, Udinese. A few minutes to go. They're a goal down. But then a brace from Batistuta sees them take the game and Malasani's off, screaming down the touchline in his polo shirt and... Uh, and his Bermuda shorts, and it gives it the full, I don't know, Mourinho knee slide under the curva. It's the other thing, you mentioned the Bermuda shorts. Like right. These were Bermuda shorts. He's, it's not like he's wearing he's wearing the uniform or he's wearing, like, he wore shorts on the sidelines. It's one of the many ways in which he, he really changed the game for managers. It's interesting, he's done a whole spate of interviews in the last year or two, mm. and one of them he's, he explains about the fact that his problem was that he was ahead of his time. And he talks about it tactically, his use of the fullbacks, high press, this kind of thing. I don't know how far you'd go along with that. Um, he also talks about the fact that when you see managers like Mourinho these days really letting go with their celebrations, like when Mourinho cupped his ears at the, at the Allianz Stadium, he says, that was all me. I unlocked the whole possibility of the manager to, to celebrate. And he said, the other thing was, I wore whatever I wanted. Now you'll see Maurizio Sarri wearing a tracksuit. But I was the guy, the first guy to do that. He has a point there. I think there were tracksuited managers a long time ago. Um, 
like as, as with a lot of what Malazani says, you got to kind of temper it a little bit because yes, Mourinho celebrates and does a lot of things, interacts with the crowd a lot, but I wouldn't say Malazani started a trend. It's kind of like Mourinho does it, but then most other people only do it sort of for, for special occasion. I don't know if you, if you agree, it's not, it's not customary that now, oh look, you know, Malazani did it in the nineties and you know, we don't see Max Allegri going and like climbing the fence or, or Pep Guardiola doing cartwheels under the ultras the way Malazani did. I mean, what we should underline again, this is his first game right. in top light football. <laughs> Act like you've been here before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Match day one. And that's how he celebrates as though he's, he's won what he would later win, I suppose. Right. Climbing the fence. Was that the Verona Derby? Does he climb the fence there? He does a lot of things celebrating. He gets on his knees. So this he is a guy who's first... to the stands. He takes his anorak off, throws that to the, the fans as well. So he's, this is years later when he becomes manager of Verona, bitter rivals of the club that gave him his first break, Chievo. And some players don't like to celebrate against their former club. Some managers like to exhibit a certain level of decorum. What happens when he beats Kievo in the derby? Well, he uh, he sticks it to Kievo and he he celebrates as though he is I don't know some triumphant gladiator, uh, which he really is, <laughs> as though he's holding Kievo's head in his hands. And I mean that derby, I really I recommend that our listeners go and seek it out because I think it's the first ever Verona derby in the top flight. It's in November 2001, I think, and Kievo are top of the table and Verona a seventh. And just a couple of weeks before, um, I think, Malisani's Verona had been 2-0 up against Juve and Trezeguet needed to score a 90-second minute equaliser to get the Bianconeri a draw. But everything happens in this derby. Eugenio Corini, for example, uh, former Genius. former Kievo player, later Kievo manager as well, who uh, also goes a little bit over the top with his celebration because Kievo got 2-0 up in this game. He scores the penalty and he rips off his shirt and slings it around his head like a lasso. Um, and then, of course, Hellas come back in the second half to win this game 3-2. And you look at the team that Malisani had there, Adrian Mutu, young Mutu in 2021, Giladino as well, guys who'd later go to, to Parma. Um, Massimo Oddo. Massimo hmm. Oddo, who scores in that game as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's just everything. There's red cards. Uh, there should be maybe three or four red cards in it. Cause... And that was a game where he turned to his assistant at 2 2. He said, it's like, if we win this, I'm going under the curva. And because he'd been warned not to do that before, they just kind of assumed that, all right, he's, he's talking smack again. But no. Alberto Malesani che va sotto la curva, incredibile, gioia di Malesani che sembra che abbia realizzato tre gol, è una festa incredibile per i tifosi del Verona e del Chievo. Hello podcasters, are you hungry? I am. Well, actually, I always am. That's why I'm doing a new series called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner, where I take interesting people to eat in a restaurant I reckon they'll like. I've spent my career interviewing over the dinner table. You just find that people relax more when they're being pelted with fine wines and being fed ample food. So in this first series, I'll be breaking bread with a whole bunch of people, including Richard E. Grant. Like a multiple rolling gastronomic orgasm. Mel C, Stanley Tucci, Tracy Ullman and Jamie Dornan. Out to lunch with Jay Rayner. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. You know you don't want to miss an episode. 
Now, we've, we've talked a little bit about Malassani and some of the less conventional parts of his nature and his career, but there was one season when it really did all come together. After his time at Fiorentina, Palmer, who'd been there or thereabouts in terms of the title battle, winning cups but never quite getting into Scudetto contention, decide that Malassani is the man to take them over the line. In 99, he joins them and... The league season doesn't work out too well, despite having that incredible bat line of, of Cannavaro, Cincini and Turan. They were second as late as February. Yeah, yeah they were second at the, to, to Lazio, I think, at the, at the turn of the boys, as they say. But they end up fourth, which is okay, but didn't sit too well, I think, with, with the fans. And I think one of the issues... On the previous year where they'd finished sixth. Right, I suppose. But I think the team had been improved as well. I think the feeling was when you looked at the players who'd come in, it's an incredible lineup. They bought Varon, they brought Aspria back um, from Newcastle as well. Gab mentioned Diego Fuzer. They bought Bogosian from from Samp, who's a World Cup winner and uh, would contribute a lot of goals in that season as well. The only guys they lost were Jesper Blomkist and Ada Hilton. So they had nine players at the World Cup that just happened that summer. Nine players for Palmer. Four um, were with Italy, Chiesa, Buffon, Dino Baggio, Cannavaro. Aspria was with Colombia. Sensini and Crespo were with Argentina. Stanic was uh, with Croatia. And you had Chiram with France as well. So, I mean, that's one of the teams you see on social media is one of the best teams of all time that should have won more than they did. They didn't do it in the league, finishing fourth. What they did do, I think in the league, the question really is the fact that how can you have a side with Cannavaro, Sensini, Turan playing in front of Buffon that still concedes loads of goals? But in the cup, it did work. In the quarterfinals against Bordeaux, they go down 2-1 in France, but then they they, they return leg, they beat Bordeaux 6-0. Have you in- seen the away goal that Crespo gets in Bordeaux to keep them in that tie? Crespo in this season, I mean, it's, a bit of a trademark of his anyway. Um, cross comes in, it's behind him, and he manages to back heel it in. Attenzione a Crespo, finezza di Crespo! Sul traversone, assist di Chiesa! They were only together for a season, Crespo and Chiesa. But some of the goals they score, I mean, it is a joy to watch because Chiesa, the number he scores from outside the box, um, just emphatic finishes as well. Um, you think of the one that he scored in the in the UEFA Cup final uh, against Marseille, that kind mm. of wrap-around half-volley, roof of the net. <laughs> the pair of them were just brilliant. They scored, I think, 14 goals between them in the UEFA Cup in that run. So, yeah, it was just a shame that they were broken apart. The well, yeah, the Palmos suddenly realised they didn't actually have any money after all. 26th of May is that final. Just to, just say 3-0, they beat... Marseille, and that's the last Italian club to win that competition. What was the UEFA Cup? Malassani, the last ago. manager to actually manage Nobody to will do ever that. Win a UEFA Cup ever again? Oh, no, but even I'm okay. What? So, but taking the Europa League as the modern counterpart, that season they win the UEFA Cup, they win the Coppa Italia, and they win, as you say, the the Super Cup it's a too. It is a treble. It's a Mourinho treble, like like when he won the Europa League, the League Cup, and the. <laughs> and Malassani is he? But they they did a feature on him on Sky Sport Italia recently, where he takes them around his vineyard because he's been out of the game a while. He says he's never retired from managing. He'd like to he'd like to conclude his career on other terms, but for now, basically no one will call. So he has a vineyard. He makes uh, Amarone, Amarone, and Valpolicella. Yeah, and unlike other people who right. get into it because oh, it's kind of cool. Look, right, let me go and buy a vineyard. He didn't buy a vineyard. He bought this piece of land, which kind of 
overlooks sort of the lake and, and Verona. And then he's like, hmm, can we grow grapes here? And then he found people and stuff like that. So he right. kind of created well, He says he got the idea when they were in that UEFA Cup run, when they went to Bordeaux, he visited a vineyard and thought, I would like to do this myself. So he's built that from scratch, as much as he had his, has his... His coaching it's a career. metaphor, isn't it? It's nice. So he's taking Sky Sports Italia around the uh, the thing, and he he says uh, along the way he's shown them his mementos, and he's got this uh, certificate from the the end of year awards. I'm not sure which one, where he was nominated for European Manager of the Year along with Lobanovsky, the Colonel, and Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, so, Cazzo. yeah, Cazzo <laughs> indeed. And that was Malasani. So unfortunately, from there on in, things don't capture those heights. At Parma, it's not that long until the Tanzis fire him. The 8th of January 2001, he's sent on his way. He then goes to Verona, where he has some success, but... Well, we talk about this year, James. I mean, they were doing really well up until Christmas. I'm pretty sure this is the the season, um, Tim Parks' book, I think this is what it's based on, where they're sort of in contention for Europe for the first half of the season, and then everything goes to pieces. Right. 5th of May 2002, a day that will live long in infamy. Why, 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 all right, whatever. <laughs> 5th of May 2002, while other teams are experiencing other <laughs> other days, Verona get beaten 3-0 by Piacenza and go down. They are the only team in the history of Serie A to be sent down without ever being, previous to the final day, in the bottom four of the table. Mm. He's relegated with his next job as well at Modena, and then he has his sort of second most successful spell, really, at Panathinaikos, where he goes to Greece, which is a bold move, finishes second one season, and in the next campaign manages to hold Barcelona to a draw in the Champions League. And that's what he's remembered for at Panathinaikos, isn't it? it? Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so there is another thing that occurs while he's at Panathinaikos, and following a home draw with Heraklis, he attends a press conference, and what follows is, I think, pretty unprecedented. It's a, it's a three-minute uh, rant describing how football is a jungle, talking about his own strength of character. Non è possibile una roba del genere, vergognatevi cazzo. E sono arrabbiato, non perché ho pareggiato, sono arrabbiato perché è uno schifo sta roba qua. Io non ho mai visto una roba del genere. Ma come dove siamo, cazzo? Cos'è diventato il calcio? Una giungla, cazzo. It features the word cazzo, and I make no apologies for that, no less than, I think, 23 times. There's several defining moments in that. One is, he speaks in Italian, and there's this, Poor woman, and I can still see Scribbling her. She looks vaguely East European. She's got like sort of sort of blondish, brownish hair, and she's supposed to translate for him, right? But he just keeps going and going. And at one point, she just looks up, and there's this look of complete exasperation in her face. Like, why am I here? What am I doing? Cazzo. <laughs> and basically, he's ranting about the press and like, and the fans. Why don't the fans help the team? You know, like, you know, what are they complaining about? We've been playing for three months, you know. And then he says, like, oh, like, yeah, why you help the team out? And then he says, like, you know, why the squadra? You know, three teams, blah, 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 want stability, all the fair game. And then at one point, he brings up Mr. Validoyanis. Now, I didn't know who this was, so I did a little bit of research. At one point, 
he's he's like he goes so far as like, oh, all you guys do is criticize, all the fans do is criticize. You even criticize Valdoyanis. It's like I'm not going to criticize Valdoyanis. Valdoyanis is the team's owner. This is his boss, the man who employs him. Like he's like, what? Who's attacking Valdoyanis here? Like how could you possibly attack Valdoyanis? Thank Valdoyanis. We should we should all be thanking Mr. Valdoyanis because if Mr. Valdoyanis gets sick of this nonsense, who knows where we're all going to end up? Thank you, Mr. Valdoyanis. And Valdoyanis going to do the solo grazie, sempre solo grazie, and. He's obviously realizing he's gone too far. And Valerianis is probably watching this on some closed circuit. And he says, what the hell kind of freak show is this? Yeah. And he says, oh, how can I save this? I've gone too far. I know. I'll just start saying great things about the owner. Because the amazing thing is his opening gambit is 24 coaches in 12 years. Oh, it, yeah. That's what it is. It, it, yeah. it can't be all the manager's fault. Siempre colpo de autore. Cazzo! The best part is like at one point, this is when, when he really loses it. The press He offer. suddenly, no, he stands up, right? He, 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 he stands up and he says like, you know, with you guys, you know, you just have to kiss your butt all the time. And then he says like, I'm a man. I work 24 seven. I don't care. I don't care if they kill me. I'll still be here working. I can go outside. They can punch me to death. But I don't care. Cadso. <laughs> My favorite bit is where a press officer at one stage, basically, you don't, he's out of shot. And uh, Malisani goes, no, no, calma, calm, like, calm, calm down. <laughs> well, you see him. this hand reach out from the press officer as if to say, Alberto, Alberto, because this is early on. It's an extraordinary, I mean, you can find it on YouTube. It is, it is remarkable. There's an extended version which sort of shows the aftermath. Mm -hmm. People have made it into a meme and whatever. And, and basically, this is the press officer recounting in Greek what he's saying. And his assistant says to him in Italian, he's like, He's like, what do you think they're going to do to you now? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, maybe I saved myself with the Valeriani's thing. Maybe I didn't. <laughs> he says that. Yes. <laughs> it's, absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, he leaves Panathinaikos, sadly, after after two years, officially because he needs to go back to Italy for for family reasons. And then he has a run of, what, four clubs, Udinese, Empoli, Siena and Bologna, in four years, only one of them making a full season. After which comes his lowest point in which he gets fired not once but twice in the same campaign by Genoa. Now, the first one's after a 6-1 defeat by Napoli. They get rid of him, bring in Pasquale Marino. But by April, they decide that Marino's not working out. So they bring back Malesani, who lasts a full 20 days. The second firing comes after that infamous uh, home defeat to Siena. Siena beat them 4-1 at Manassi. And the Genoa fans are so enraged that that's the game where they basically they basically occupy the the entrance to the tunnel so that the teams can't go out. Can't go out. They they first of all they throw flares onto the pitch. The game gets suspended. The players try to leave, and the ultras tell them you're not leaving with your shirts on. Take your shirts off because you're not worthy to wear the team's uniform. And most of them do. A lot of them are in tears at this point. One of them, I think, Schooly. you Schooly, who has a kind of interesting history himself. He's related to his grandfather. Yeah, is a kind of mob boss down in Calabria. Yes. No? Yeah. So anyway, interesting, interesting power struggle going on there. But Schooly's really, really upset about this, and there's a standoff. Malasani, anyway, before he gets fired the first time at that club, he has another of his press conference episodes. I would say this but it's, one. It's bizarre. It's kind of weird. It's almost it speaks to some kind of issues. He becomes obsessed with the idea that people think that he's mollo. He goes on this monologue in a press conference 
Repeating the word "mollo" thirty times. Now, yeah, we, "mollo" is not actually a word <laughs> in the Italian language. You can't look it up in a dictionary. But it would it, mean what? It, like kind of wobbly, well, kind of not strong. "Molle" means soft, right? Right. So I guess he's turning the adjective "soft" into, I guess, some sort of personal noun. Right. right. When he says like "non sono mollo," I am not a. I guess it would be the equivalent of I'm not a softy. Like this. Demotivato, mollo. Ma che mollo? Ma che cosa dite? Mollo che? Ma che mollo? Ma quale mollo? Cioè, cosa vuol dire mollo qua? Non capisco io. Ma con questo non è che sono un mollo. Mollo. Se uno resista 21 anni a questi livelli qua, non credo che sia tanto mollo. Un po' di rispetto anche lì. Che mollo. And the weird thing is, every time you think he's done, back he comes again with more. Mollo. Ma che mollo. Ma cosa dite? Mollo che? Non sono mollo. Quale mollo? It's, I mean, it's, it's funny and it's really hard not to laugh, but it's, it's quite troubling as well. I hope he knows that we're laughing with him. With him, yeah. And he is a man with the, for whom I think the world of football has, the clubs maybe not so much, but the fans have a lot of affection for him. Yeah, because, well, partly there's a whole element that, you know, he is kind of, okay, he was a professional footballer briefly, but he is kind of every man. Mm. And, and he just always looked like, even when he was getting angry, he was into it. He was, he looked like he was like privileged to be there. I mean, you may disagree with this, but I'd argue that he didn't feel stressed, even when he lost his cool and was angry, even with Patinaikos and Validoyanis, when he viewed this as kind of like, this is a big game. Even the whole thing is he's there and he knows he's... he's he always felt quite anti-establishment, no? Yes. Yeah. And, and he, would, he would tell it straight. He wouldn't basically fall back on all your kind of cliches that you usually get in post-match interviews. He would express, he would show his emotion. And I think, yeah, Gab hit upon it there, but you've also got, uh, in terms of him being an everyman, but someone who won things, his team's played good football, they scored lots of goals, and he cared in the games that you know fans care about most which are those big derby games and kind of you know sort of you know getting on getting on your assistant's shoulders piggybacking around doing a lap of honor and lapping it all up like everyone really should you know i mean go back to that verona derby that is really someone smelling the roses in terms of that's true malatani no ordinary manager and indeed these days no manager for the last 5 years out of the well, game making wine on the hillside uh, above verona a great quote in a in, in a piece of somebody's gone there to, to interview him where he's basically tending to his vines and he says, I'd like to see Mourinho do this. Altro che Mourinho, cazzo. Whatever that Mourinho a fare il vino, cazzo. I think, James, there is something to be said about that as well in that when it comes to, he falls into a very easy stereotype, which is people from the Veneto, they swear a lot and they drink a lot. He feels that not only have those press conferences kind of made him a figure of fun and yeah. done damage to his image. But also there was a photo of him, you know, sort of laid back, enjoying a glass of wine, looking a bit out of it. You know, I think we've all had photos taken when we, you know, sort of slightly merry uh, and it doesn't look great. And he feels that, you know, that went viral on social media. Right. And that is one of the things why people don't take him seriously anymore. Yeah. And he hasn't got a way back into the into the game. He says, I, I've analysed this myself. I, I wanted to give myself an explanation so I, I reached out I did surveys in the world of football to understand why nobody calls me anymore and it emerged that people have lost respect for me and he says it's social media i social mi hanno rovinato so I thought I deserved to finish my career better than this probably I have some big blame for it myself for certain decisions I made I should have done other ones but I think that I always work well 
I had some forward-thinking ideas, uh, innovative ideas, and not just the same old cliches from the people you always hear about. Boy, I'll say. Yeah, I look, maybe it was social media that destroyed Malazani, or maybe it was the fact that his last six jobs, he laid a big giant egg and got sacked from all of them, and I think all but one in less than a season. And, right. you know, you get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a sixth chance, you know. Yeah, Squinzi at Sassuolo was his last job, 2014. Well, I mean, and that's, that's, he that's says it was the, the worst biggest, of the lot. Hiring him was the biggest mistake he ever made. Because you can excuse, you know, being sacked twice by Genoa. If you go to Palermo, you are going to get sacked. Mm. But when he took over Sassuolo and lost five of five games and Di Francesco was brought back and basically saved them, that is a club that is set up in a very good way for managers to succeed. And the Juventus' C team. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't. So and he didn't. All right. Well, best of luck, Alberto. Facciamo un brindisi, eh? You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Saturday in Italy, il derby d'Italia, one-one. Lovely opening choreography from the. Uh, they love Corvo nothing Nord. more than doing this. They do it every year when Juventus go out of the Champions League, and there's still it's a derby d'Italia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, fantastic game over. Not just game over, they also had a little homage to Britney Spears. Oops, oh. I did it again. Oh, did they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Nyingolan then uh, rubs Juve's noses in it a little bit further with... Loves nothing fan. more than doing that, Nyingolan, who will, you know, often but wind down do? his his car window, Harry Redknapp style, not to tell you he's signing players, but to tell you how much he hates Juve. Tell us about his goal. While lighting a cigarette. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, Politano hooks the ball kind of hopefully. It's like I think it's it's it the ball is cleared, but not very well. And Nyingland sees it falling out of the sky and just thinks, I'm gonna hit this Nyingland style. And he catches it so well. Um Chesney, I think, probably could have done a little bit better. Maybe a bit unsighted, but seems to misjudge the flight of the ball a little bit. But great strike from Raja mm. nonetheless. I'm surprised Chesney's actually wrist withstood the force and the spin of right. that shot. A tremendously well-struck goal from Nangelan, which put Inter 1-0 up, and it was Cristiano Ronaldo who equalised with the 600th goal of his illustrious career. And Mauri Cardi started the game too. which is Right, and from now on it's going to be one or the other, is that right? Lautaro or, or Lautaro? Who knows, with the crazy man in charge? Could okay. be anything. Well, hey, it, Inter... Could be wound cons- up front for all you know. <laughs> Consolidated. So basically Inter's third place looks a little bit more secure, or does it? They're four points clear of Roma, who are occupying fourth spot after a fine 3-0 win mm-hmm. over Cagliari. Well, I mean, fine when you remember the reverse fixture where they were 2-0 up and they uh, oh, yeah. they conceded two in stoppage time down to nine men. So Pastore scoring, beautiful goal. Cliver yeah, with I, the assists as well. Can I say, I hate this time of year because what happens is <laughs> you get all these guys who've been pants or injured all year, hence Pastore, Nangolan, much as I love Raja. And the reality is this is where you get the fool's gold at the end of the season. You get people like, oh, well, but look, Pastore got us in the Champions League. You know, like, no, no, no. It's just simply a game that you played in at the end of the season and there's 37 other ones where he did nothing. Well, two points behind Roma, just outside the top four, are three teams all level on 56 points. Milan, Atalanta and Torino who've just beaten Milan 2-0. How long can Gattuso last? It was terrible. And they've been terrible since the the derby 
um, which you know they went into that game in great form, looked like they were going to uh, dust Inter off, and Inter were going to have a hard time getting into the Champions League. And since then, the goals have run out. Piontek stopped scoring. Paketa's been injured. He's even back. dropped this week, no? It's four games yeah. without a goal for Piontek. This is the other thing. Like, I know that's the narrative. Piontek <laughs> no, no, stopped scoring. And, like, but he didn't score for three games. And Gattuso puts him on the bench. He comes on. He doesn't score. Like, yeah, but Gabby, it's, it's like it's three and ten. It's not just going four straight. It's, it's, a, it's a long run. What about run Torino, now. though? I mean, they're now just outside the Champions League position. They have a real chance. As long as it doesn't rain or anything, That I reckon Mazzari <laughs> could be back in, in the Champions League. Yeah, and I think he is quite right to say that they are the revelation. Um, oh, yeah. Defensive. It's, it's him. It's, it's, not, it's not Atalanta. It's them. It's, it's not Atalanta who, if they win this evening as we record this on the Monday, yeah. will be in fourth place. No, it has, it's Mazzari who's the revelation, despite the fact that his wage bill, his spending is twice that of Atalanta. No, no, no. It's not Atalanta. And I say this as somebody who's not a Gasparini fan, as you know. Right. No, it has to be Walter, of course. <laughs> I mean, I would prefer to see... I mean, it'd be great if if we could, you know, expand the Champions League and have, you know, Atlanta and Torino in there together. Maybe they could take um, this Premier League place then. <laughs> but uh, I would prefer to see Atlanta in Europe than Torino, yeah, just mean, because Torino um, play quite efficient. I mean, that's a complimentary, that's very complimentary to say that. Nasty, speculative, defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Was it 15 clean sheets this season? Nine in 2019. They've got the yeah best defensive also, record. They, no, this Atlanta would be the romantic choice, as you say. They're they taking on Udinese. Players. Like if you go through it player by player, if you compare Atlanta, I mean, maybe they even have a better squad than Lazio. Like this is not like a fairy tale story. They they have a better squad than Lazio. You think? They're I don't think they're far off when you actually go through it. There's a group of so-called big clubs, right? Roma, Milan, Inter, Juve, Napoli, and then I would put Lazio and Torino in the same bracket. Okay. And I'm talking in terms of resources and what was spent on the squad and talent available to you. Right. And then there's everybody. So, I, mean, I don't know if you agree, but like this is... I agree they, in terms really of uh, money invested in, in the squad uh, and wage bill. Um, but I actually think that Atlanta have got a better squad. Not just a better first 11, but a yeah, better squad. But um, in terms of resources, yeah, you know. No, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Manager too. Atalanta, who are also, since our last podcast, into their first final in 34 years. They beat Fiorentina 2-1 Thursday night. And we'll be taking on Lazio in a fortnight. You're going out to Bergamo this week, James. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lazio, by the way, who themselves got things back on track as regards their top four challenge. So it's getting crowded there. They had a 2-1 win at Sampdoria. Any reaction to uh, what their fans got up to away in their Coppa Italia semi-final against Milan. The scenes of Piazzale Loretto with the with the banner for Mussolini and the kind of the parade so and then the, the bananas. you don't know is the squad where Mussolini was lynched along with and It's his, also where the, 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 the repercussions against partisans were, uh, there were it was 15 also, executed. Was there. it not on Liberation Day as well? Yes, it was. It was yeah. on April 25th, which is an important holiday for many of us in Italy. The issue there is this happens away from the stadium. away from the stadium, and then there were the inflatable bananas at San Siro, and then outside San Siro, the Semi Riducibile of film singing this banana. Just in case there's any confusion about what's yeah. going on, this banana is for so, for you, Bakayoko. So the thing is, they did that before at their last game before that, an away game, right? And again, if the law says, "Oh look, yeah, they're racially abusing somebody," but he's not actually there but they're filming it and putting it on social media, that should be treated the same way. Mm-hmm. It's then doing it. I, I, this is what I don't understand. There's so many laws, and the laws themselves are actually 
are, so are actually you saying tough. that it's not a crime what they did or that it's not something that can be sanctioned? Well, if you're talking about sporting justice, uh-huh. I think this is the excuse they're going to use. They're going to say, well, it's a bunch of people in Piazza de Loretta's, nothing to do with a football match. And what about at the San Siro? That was, that was outside the stadium, wasn't it? Supposedly and, inside and also, as well, but the, the film is outside, yeah. Yeah, I think it's completely absurd and, and unacceptable. As I said, I think they should have been sanctioned for what they did. I forget who they were playing. It was at home, wasn't it? Their, their, their last game before this one. That's Kievo, when they yeah. first pulled out, yeah, against Kievo, which you heard very clearly because Kievo had no traveling fans. They filmed themselves in the Kurva, and that's when they first did the Bakayoko song. And the argument, which they're going to use, I think, I mean, I hope this isn't the case, but the defense is going to be, well, wait a minute. They're not racially abusing anybody. They're, they're racially abusing somebody who's not actually there, somebody who's 500 miles away. Right. That should not be an acceptable defense. Yeah, I think we're all agreeing or on that. Or you'll get that ludicrous thing that happened when Muntari, uh, when it was Pescada Cagliari a few years ago, and Sporting Justice came out with this explanation that it was less than 10% of the crowd, and so we're not going to punish Cagliari here. It's less well, than Calliari's... 10% of the people in, the sec- in that, section, in that of, section of the crowd, which means you can't close down that set. They're, they're all tiered sanctions, basically. So has has there been any move towards doing anything this time? The, ca- the recent well, calorie we're issues... We're waiting for the disciplinary committee to meet. Okay. I mean, Leonardo came out the day after, gave a big interview in Gazetta where he said, you know, we lost fair and square, that's fine. We're not here to complain about that. But we do want the protocol for racist chanting to be implemented. Um, and I think since the Inter-Napoli game before Christmas, when Koulibaly was, was racially abused, you know, they have kind of got away from just, uh, you know, on, this, on the first instance, they have someone on the speaker say stop, second instance on the speaker say stop, third instance basically gather everyone in the center circle and then take them off. Now it's at the first instance and Leonardo is like, well, I mean, didn't even do it the first instance, nothing in the second instance, nothing in the third instance. Um, and it was the same referee team as well, um, which, you know, you'd think they would be maybe a little bit more sensitive. We often hear after the fact directors, coaches saying, you know, next time we'll take our players off the pitch. Mm-hmm. Isn't it about time that they, they did that? I mean, we've, 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 heard, we've heard Ancelotti say it this season after the Napoli Inter game. It may um, be a coincidence, though, but Koulibaly has not been racially abused since mm. at Napoli game, since Ancelotti went and, and threatened to take his players off the pitch. Mm. But I'm I just thought, if, 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 related, when, but. when I was reading that interview with Leonardo and he was saying, our team manager went and spoke to the fourth official, he notified them, he notified them again and again and again. Isn't that when you should be intervening? Isn't that when you should be basically saying, right, enough's enough, we're going to make a stand here? Because we keep hearing conversation, talk about this a lot, and the action isn't, isn't following. So yeah. there you go. One other thing to mention, and hopefully we'll be on to happier news next week, Bologna beat Empoli 3-1. Looks like Empoli are probably down now. Looks like the relegation battle may well be settled. Well, also Sinise is in there. Incredible An job. incredible job. In the last eight games, they've got the best record in the league. Mm. Came from behind in this one as well. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Well, so now you're off to Bergamo then this week. Yeah. And next week's Golazzo may well be focusing strongly on the goddess. One of the more remarkable stories in European football this season. For now, though, that brings us to the end of this edition of Golazzo. Many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle, producer Charlie. From all of us here, it's a Riva Dirci. 
You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>